0: Good morning. Turn, if you would, to Psalm sixty four. That sounds familiar, it's because Tony just read it. Psalm sixty four Hear my voice, O God, in my prayer. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of the wicked, from the insurrection of the workers of iniquity, who wet their tongue like a sword, and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, even bitter words, that they may shoot in secret at the perfect. Suddenly do they shoot at him and fear not. They encourage themselves in an evil matter, and they commune of lying snares, Privily they say, Who shall see them? They search out iniquities, they accomplish a diligent search, both the inward thought of every one of them, and the heart is deep. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow, suddenly shall they be wounded. So they shall make their own tongue to fall upon themselves, all that see them shall flee away. And all men shall fear, and shall declare the work of God, for they shall wisely consider of his doing." The righteous shall be glad in the Lord, and shall trust in him, and all the upright in heart shall glory. Try to figure out where this goes so I don't breathe into it. It's not known for certain what David was experiencing when he wrote this psalm. And, of course, there's two thoughts, the two that are primary, of uh, the difficulties that he faced in life. One was when Saul was attempting to kill him, hated David, and the other is when Absalom rebelled against David. But this psalm speaks of secret attacks, a secret nature in the way that his enemies come against him. And because of that, I think this was actually written at a time of Absalom's rebellion and not Saul's hatred. For instance, Saul wasn't really very stealthy about what he did. If you recall, he had a javelin in his hand two different times and he just fired it at David. So there's nothing real secret about that. But if you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15, looking at verses 10 through 12, we're going to see some of the things that Absalom did in order to conspire against his father, David. 15, 10 through 12. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as ye hear the sound of the trumpet, then ye shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went two hundred men out of Jerusalem that were called, and they went in their simplicity, and they knew not anything. And Absalom sent for Hethfeld the Gileadite, David's counselor, from his city, even from Gilo while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom." Interesting things happen there. We're not going to get too involved with it. But Absalom invites 200 men from Jerusalem. And when it says that they didn't know anything, that just means they don't even know why they're going to meet Absalom. They just leave Jerusalem and and go. Um, Seemed a little bit strange. You know, they're leaders, obviously. Absalom has an agenda. He wants to make sure that he has plenty of followers and he wants important followers. So he invites these 200 men, and they go, and in addition to that, he asks one other man to attend this meeting, Ahithophel, David's counselor, and more than a counselor, it was his friend. He called David's friend to come join me in this conspiracy against my father, And I think it is under those circumstances that David writes Psalm 64. And as we look at this, this is called an individual lament psalm. So it's David writing on behalf of himself, and the lament is that he's crying out to God for deliverance. This psalm starts off in distress but ends in glory. It ends in joy. And it ends up writing about the wonders of God. Now, this psalm divides up real easy. There is David's prayer in verses 1 through 6 and David's encouragement in 7 through 10. Now, each of those have two subgroups, starting off with verse 1, And two is an appeal for protection from the wicked, part of David's prayer. And David's prayer also includes three through six. He describes the evil activities of the wicked. In verse 7 through 10, we find that David's confident expectation of the defeat of the wicked by God. And then in verse 10, he describes the joy of the righteous, so, in verse 1, David is lifting up his voice in prayer to God. Hear my voice, O God, in my prayer. But the Hebrew word for prayer here is more accurately translated as complaint. Hear my complaint. Now, note, that doesn't mean whining. Whining. He has a real concern. David is not posting a Facebook rant of all the petty issues that he has read from other people's Facebook posts. That's not what this is. It's entirely different. But David is consumed with troubled thoughts. Unlike whining, David is surrounded by a real and malicious enemy. But there's something interesting about this that's different than what you would anticipate hearing. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. He's not asking for destruction of the enemy. He's asking that God would watch over, safeguard him, safeguard his thoughts, deal with his anxieties, That's what he's asking for. He wants relief from the dreadful terror that he feels in regard to his enemy. David sees that his fear of them was more debilitating to him and his soul than was the actual threat from his enemies. Why did he feel like that? because he recognizes when anxiety reaches that point where everything is consumed by the terrible thoughts that you have toward this problem, you have since lost track of what God can do for you. You are consumed with worry. Anybody been there? Consumed with worry? And had greater... And half of them didn't even come to fruition. They just disappeared. Didn't meet your fears? So in verse 2, Hide me from the secret counsel of the wicked from the insurrection of the workers of iniquity. David's asking that he be sheltered in a secret place away from his enemies' secret counsels. David has confidence that God can conceal him more ably Than the concealment of the closed door meetings of his enemies. David's enemies have become emboldened, we see here. Insurrection is growing. There's a noisy crowd of evildoers, is what that means. We should be familiar with that term, insurrection, because of our recent American history, right? That's what's happened. There's this noisy crowd in this building, and it's getting stronger and louder. But we know that this was a true concern for David. This is not something that he just imagines. It's for real. And he's looking for God for protection. In verse 3, it says, "...they wet their tongue like a sword, and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, even bitter words." So David compares his enemy's preparation and their attack on him to the soldier sharpening his sword for battle. And I found that kind of an interesting uh, analogy here because uh, I have a few knives, and then I have some knife sharpening tools at home. I use stones. I don't do anything that's electrical. You know, I do it the old school way. And there's some lessons that I think David's using in this imagery, Every stroke that you take on a stone, you have to do it rather rapidly. But the process is slow. If you, you have to count the strokes. You go across the stone rather fast. But what you're doing is you're feeling for resistance. If you've nicked your blade, when you drag it across the stone, you'll feel it. And you have to keep going again and again and again. The repetition of constantly removing a few ten thousandths of an inch of metal will eventually remove all those uh, imperfections. You also have to do it on the opposite side, same way. So you see what I'm saying here? It's meticulous. It's time-consuming. So when he says that they wet their tongue like a sword, they have met in secret multiple times crafting their sword crafting their concerns, and plotting against David. They have done this to the extent that they are ready to deliver a lethal blow with their swords. Now, these are not real swords. You see here, they wet their tongue. They prepared themselves practicing over and over and over the words that they're going to use. When they get the 200 men to come, what are they going to tell the 200 men? Well, they've been practicing, and they want a good argument, and they want these men to follow them. So they crafted their words, they developed their plots, they're ready to, to deal a lethal wound to David, and... They are taking careful aim at him because that imagery moves on and bend their bows to shoot their arrows. What are their arrows coming off of that tongue that they've sharpened? Bitter words, angry words. They're going to get even with David for whatever ill they think they've received from him. And they prepared speeches, and they have drawn back with all their might the bow of their intention to deliver harsh, bitter, angry words. Now, if you turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 15 again, we're going to see what those words sound like. They're meant to destroy the character of David. David. And overthrow his rule. They're meant... These words aren't name-calling or saying weak insults. They're poisoned darts. They're meant to inflict pain and destruction. 2 Samuel 15, 2 through 5. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way to gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment... Then Absalom called unto him and said, Oh, what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See thy matters are good and right, but there's no man deputed to the king to hear thee. Absalom said, Moreover, O that I were made judge in the land, that every man which comes, which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do obeisance, he put forth his hand, took him, and kissed him. But what's Absalom doing? You know, David's inside the city. Absalom says outside the city. He's at the gate. And when somebody comes with a complaint that they want someone to uh, handle, Absalom says, hey, buddy, long time no see. Come on over here. Let me give you a hug. What's going on? Well, I got this complaint. Oh, man, I'd really love to help you, buddy. But the king didn't appoint anybody for this kind of stuff. You're on your own. But if you made me king, I'd get some stuff done for you. I'd see you get justice. That's the way Absalom handled these attacks. Well, what is he saying? David doesn't care about your problems. I do. In fact, when you kneel down before me, I pick you up, I I give you a big hug, I tell you how great you are, right? That's what he's doing. He's undermining the authority of his father and king, David. In the same way that he's trying to gain followers, he is also destroying the character of his father. As though his father cares less, David cares less about those people than Absalom does. So as this moves forward in verse 4, that they may shoot in secret at the perfect. Suddenly do they shoot at him and fear not. So what have they done? It says they've sharpened their tongues, they've loaded their bow, they have their poison arrows ready, they're prepared to unleash these weapons and they're doing it all in secret. And they don't fear. They don't fear what? In this case, they don't fear God or man. They feel that David's incapable of resolving this problem, and they feel like God isn't paying attention. Remember who David is, a man after God's own heart. And they don't care about that. They don't care about man. They don't care about David. And have no regard for God. That's the condition that's met here. They lie in ambush, like cowards, ready to attack. And David, and a man of integrity, as it says here, it called "perfect," obviously, that doesn't mean that he is sinlessly perfect, but he has integrity. He's not familiar with these low-life tactics. He never used them himself, right? But now, they're lying in wait. How close are they to be prepared to attack David? In verse five, they encourage themselves in an evil manner. They commune of lying snares. Privily, they say, "Who shall see them?" Their confidence is growing. Is what's going on? They're talking among themselves. They're going to set snares for David. Now, in Sunday school, it's been a few months back, but we did a study on snares and hunting and all that kind of stuff. And a snare would be put on a game trail. There's a loop at one end. You take a sapling, you bend the sapling over, tie the other end off on it, have a trip wire on that so that as soon as the animal enters in, hits the tripwire, tripwire lets the sapling snap back, the loop closes, grabs the leg, and pulls the animal up off the ground, never knowing what struck it until it's already ensnared. That's what they say they're doing in regard to David. They're doing all these things purposely evil, secretly, privily, as it says, meeting together, talking about how they're going to bring the downfall of David. And they see him as nothing more than a beast that could be grabbed by the leg and pulled off of the throne. The design of that snare is it looks harmless because it's always covered over. looks just like everything else around it. It's to capture the unexpected, and they see David as that unexpected animal with no sense, and it leaves no chance of escape. In their minds, as they build this case against David, as Absalom sits at the court, or rather at the gate, and he conspires to tell people how he would do a better job, and men are being pulled into this conspiracy. And they're constantly being told how much better Absalom will be, and David is just going to walk into that snare and be trapped. Which always, it led me to think, was this psalm written in the first half as the conspiracy builds and in 7 through 10, added later, as David recognizes his deliverance. So in verse 6, they search out iniquities. They accomplish a diligent search. Both the inward thought of every one of them, and the heart is deep. That's how thorough this conspiracy is. They've plotted against David. They have developed the perfect plan. You ever do one of those? The perfect plan. Yeah. Well, it was perfect until I initiated it, and then it fell apart, right? So David is saying in this verse that they have searched, they have come to agreement, they have thought out every aspect of their effort. How well is it going to work? And David says that the evil propensity of these men, and for that matter all men, runs deep. It runs deep. The evil propensities of mankind reaches into the deepest recesses of the heart. That's how far this goes. Because he says both the inward thought of every one of them You see how thorough and complete that is? Everyone had this evil consideration, every single one of them. And it went so deep, it went to the very depths of their heart. That's the complaint right there. Does it sound like whining to you? It sounds like a man of God is being attacked by the evil hearts of the followers of Absalom. So what's going to become of this? Verse 7. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly shall they be wounded. After all the plotting that these men did. In verse 2. Verse 3. They sharpened their speeches like swords. Aimed their words like arrows set in a bow. Verse 4. They lay an ambush and fired at David like snipers they set their hidden snares and they used every possible scheme their evil hearts could devise that's the circumstance it sounds like David is as good as ruined until verse 7 but God that's the part that changes out all the other 6 verses Cancels all that out. Here's what these men are doing. Here's how smart they are. Here's how evil they are. Here's how well they've developed a plan. All of this has happened. Okay, good. Sounds perfect. But God stepped into the middle of it. All of it comes to nothing because of God. It's all failed. They're the ones that are defeated. They had their bows pulled back, ready to fire, but we find out that God shot the first arrow, and it was a lethal blow. They're going to be wounded, never seeing it come because their hearts were so evil, they never thought about God. They had laid ambush for the perfect, blameless David. And when I say perfect, I'm not saying that he's sinlessly perfect. We know of his ruin. They were going to shoot suddenly and fearlessly. But God's arrow of justice was fired more quickly and more accurately. Now, we're going to bring that up into the vernacular of today. These men had their Nerf guns loaded ready to fire, and God unloaded a 50 cal on them. That's what happened. So, in verse 8, "...so they shall make their own tongues to fall upon themselves. All that see them shall flee away." Fall upon themselves. Can you imagine this group that thought they were going to have a king of their own making, and then it came to ruin? You know what they're doing? They're bickering among themselves. <laughs> All these sharp lies that they had developed for David, they're turning on each other. That's where they landed with this. And how far did it go? Everybody that was a part of this, everybody that was witnessing it, scattered like cockroaches when the lights are turned on. They ran off for cover. Another translation, and multiple translations at that, say that this is the witnesses wagged their heads. (sighs) What a bunch of morons. Sure glad I didn't join in with them, but I was close. (laughs) I was thinking about it, but I didn't do it. They shook their head in derision and contempt for David's enemies, whose enemies would have, when they won, expected everybody to shake their heads in derision of David. And it was all turned around on them. So in verse 9, And all men shall fear and shall declare the work of God, for they shall wisely consider of his doing. The plotting that they had done was in secret. But their defeat, everybody saw it. 200 men wandered off over there to Hebron to meet up with Absalom, didn't even know why they're going. Sounds like like a plan. I'm going to go over there. Not sure why. Maybe I'll get a free meal. The defeat was public. Everyone knew. Everyone talked about it. And everyone understood what had occurred. Can't ever have a a sermon without a Spurgeon quote, right? I mean, it's just like... it's almost mandatory. I, I guess I should have wore a vest, though so it would be... <laughs> Spurgeon said in regard to this, some of the divine judgments are a great deep, but in the case of malicious persecutors, the matter is plain enough, and the most illiterate can understand. So <laughs> Spurgeon says... This was so obvious that it was God's hand, even the dumbest person you know could figure it out for themselves. That's what he said. That's Randy's translation of Spurgeon, (laughs) okay? So in verse 10, after all this going on, in David's prayers, David's troubled mind And the downfall of his enemies has occurred. And David looks at this in retrospect. What's he got to say about it? What would you have to say about it? Man, sure glad I figured out that plot and had it ruined before it occurred. I was really pretty sharp on that one. I figured it out for myself. What's he say? The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and shall trust in him, and all the upright in heart shall glory. God did it. Don't you see? That's what that verse means. Don't you see? God did this. And the righteous are glad. He prayed to be preserved over a dreadful fear of his enemies. Here we see him moved from fear to rejoicing, from fear to exaltation, knowing that the righteous will rejoice in the God that provides security in a world that looks to destroy others. Don't we live in that world today? Social media is constantly buzzing with an attempt to cancel out the other side. That the deadly wounds are being inflicted inflicted on enemies from both sides. Where does someone stand up in the middle of all that and say the enemy of this world is Satan? That's the enemy, and he's delivering mortal wounds to humanity. And we only see it as somebody that sits on the other side of the aisle. The reality is, the enemy is someone else other than that. Can you place trust in God? David started off, and he was desperate. But when he's finished, he says, you will be glad when you see the righteousness of God and his justice delivered, and you can trust in him. You can trust in him to do right, to do justly. That's what you can trust in God. Will he come and protect those of his own? Absolutely. It's the divine character of God and his display of that divine character in this part of David's life that brought David even more confidence as he moved through his life, that he would be protected. And the upright in heart, they'll glory, they'll rejoice, they'll have cause for trust, because all hope of deliverance rests upon a God that can be trusted a God that is righteous.